So today we will be looking at 1 John 4, 1 through 6 as we continue our series, The Gospel Transformed Life. And this message is entitled, Test the Spirits. In the 1930s, fear and anxiety were heightened. The Great Depression wreaked havoc on the nation for the entire decade, starting in 1929 and going till 1939, um, according to history. I'm sure that there's some wiggle room with that. Um, in 1938, radio was taking over as the main source of news and entertainment. And like today, there were times when the two, news and entertainment, couldn't be separated. At 8 p.m. on October 30th, 1938... The Columbia Broadcasting System aired Orson Welles' famous program, now famous, maybe infamous, I don't know, Mercury Theater on the Air. The program began promptly at 8 o'clock, and it began with an introduction announcing that the program that evening was a rendition of H.G. Wells, no relation, famous book, War of the Worlds. And I just want to play for you just kind of the beginning of that program so you can kind of hear how it started. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Okay, that's pretty good. You don't need to listen to the entire thing, although if you go to YouTube, you can find it. Uh, But this program uh, started, like I said, at 8 o'clock, but the majority of listeners across the country were not tuned into that program quite yet. They were tuned into NBC's popular Chase and Sanborn Hour, which featured ventriloquist Edgar Bergen and his dummy, Charlie McCarthy. This program ended at 8.12 p.m., and as it ended... It was at that time people that began to turn the dial, searching for something else to listen to, and stumbled upon Orson Welles' program. But the program that they heard on CBS radio channel sounded a lot like very real news broadcasts happening, because the way it was written was that it was a musical program that kept getting interrupted by breaking news. And so there's these news clips that just keep breaking into the music, talking about aliens descending upon New Jersey. This hour-long broadcast uh, then proceeded to just lay out this invasion where there was so much devastation, confusing listeners, and causing mass hysteria. Christopher Klein, a historian, wrote about the response. They besieged police departments, newspapers, and CBS with phone calls. In New Jersey, ground zero for the fictitious invasion, National Guardsmen wanted to know where they should report for duty. And the Trenton Police Department fielded 2,000 phone calls in under two hours. In Providence, Rhode Island, hysterical callers begged the electric company to cut power to the city to keep it safe from the extraterrestrial invaders. The panic eventually subsided as people began to discover that they were not in any imminent danger. And in the years since, it's been debated whether Orson Welles unknowingly caused this panic or whether this was a nationwide prank. 
At the time, Orson Welles was 27 years old and trying to climb to fame. And it was after this program that he got launched into stardom and was kind of greenlit for the rest of his projects. And he would go on to make the famous movie Citizen Kane. Fake news is nothing new. I'm certain that many uh, would later feel rather silly about believing the broadcast to be real. But it shows that we must be careful about blindly believing everything we hear, see, or read. That in mind, let's read 1 John 4, 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of air. And this morning, we're going to look at two points, false prophets and the greater God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, first of all, for your fatherly heart for us. Lord, we thank you that you love us with such a great love. You would send your son to die for us, that you would rescue us from our sin and bring us into relationship with you that you've called us sons and daughters, and that you've drawn near to us and bring us near to you. Lord, I ask that you would bless um, those who are fathers, those who desire to be fathers, those who are fathering uh, to those around them. Lord, just on this day, I ask that you would just give a special blessing to them. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes to see the truth in your word today. Fill us with your spirit so that we would know truth. And be able to recognize error. We praise you. Bless you in Jesus name. Amen. False prophets. We've seen throughout John's epistle. uh, Or letter. Epistle means letter. Several diagnostics. We've talked about those at length. As I've previously mentioned. These were not written to unsettle or cause confusion to the believers. uh, But were given as a means of assurance for the church. And we cannot view them properly when we separate them from the greater context of the letter. So we need to know the context to be able to understand uh, what is happening with these diagnostics. John is writing to his readers, a church that has undergone uh, much heartache and division as a large group of people have left the church. And so John is exhorting them to be careful of the voices or the messages that they are listening to. John's purpose for writing Actually, his purpose says, because there are many, but his, his purpose can kind of be summed up, uh, if you will, uh, that the believers would have assurance in their faith and know who they are in Christ. And he wrote that they may not have sin, but if they do, that they would run to Christ, their advocate. He writes that they would know who it is that's deceiving them. He also writes in 1 John 5.13, a passage we will get to soon, uh, He writes so that his readers would know that they have eternal life. He is writing so they might be able to clearly discern who is of the faith and who is not. Both from without 
and within. False teachers had left the church, but I think it's safe to say that John is concerned for the spiritual health of those who have remained. He's concerned about their well-being, their maturity in Christ. He knows that the problem of other gospels, false gospels, will continue to be a problem for the church. The evil one, Satan, is the deceiver. He's the father of lies. He's the father of murder, as we've seen. And his desire is to do as much harm to the church as he possibly can. The Bible describes him as a lion roaming about, seeking to hurt and kill and destroy all that he can. The problems the church faced and which we continue to face are not simply from without. It's not just simply out there. It's not just simply the world. It's also from within. So let's look again at verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Again, John is addressing uh, these believers with much care. He says, beloved. He cares very much for this church. He's concerned about the danger lurking about. He exhorts the believers to not just blindly follow every false prophet. Not just to blindly follow everyone who speaks to them, teaches them. John's point in verse 1 is that behind every prophet or teacher is a message. And behind every message is a spirit. The message will inform the listener to the spirit that is behind it. Is it the Holy Spirit or is it another? His instructions to not believe and to test every spirit are imperatives calling for continuous action and vigilance. He is calling for examination of what is being proclaimed. And so we must be wise and we must be careful listeners. The false prophets, or in the Greek, I don't usually reference Greek words, but I thought this was a cool one, pseudo-prophetai, are many, and they have gone into the world. The admonition, the admonition to test the spirits and to be aware of false teachers and prophets is repeated often in the New Testament. We may be tempted to think that uh, false teachers and false prophets is a rather new thing. Um, you know, the further we've gotten away from the early church, the more we've gotten of false teaching, false prophets and all that. But it was there at the very beginning. And it's just continued. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 and 21, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Peter warns, in 2 Peter 2.1, but false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. The warning from the apostles is not simply that there will be mistaken teachers or that people will accidentally get things wrong, which we certainly do. We certainly misunderstand things, misapply things. We know that all believers, including teachers and elders, are in a process of growing in their knowledge of the gospel and of grace. But what the apostles are saying is that these false prophets, teachers, and apostles are not simply guilty of theological error. They're guilty of theological heresy. What John is pointing to is the spirit behind the one leading people away from the gospel. Not everyone who teaches or preaches about Christ is a Christian. We have seen John warning against the obvious wolves, those who had walked away clearly denying their sin. 
they had left. It was clear that they were not of them. But what John is warning against here is wolves in sheep's clothing. Those who were within who might still be teaching these false gospels. And if there wasn't any at that time who were doing it in their congregation, their fellowship, there certainly would arise some who would at some point in time. How do we know what is truth? John specifically has in mind those who would say that Jesus has not come in the flesh. Let's look again at verses 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So John is giving another diagnostic tool. If you've gotten tired of that phrase, um, it's going to just come again and again and again. There's lots of diagnostic tools in the book of 1 John. Maybe 1 John is the toolbox of, of our, our faith, giving us some ways to know more about Christ and to see who is of him and who is not. Uh, but this, this diagnostic tool really is a question about Christ. It is this, what do you believe about Jesus? And we've spoken about Gnosticism in previous weeks, and I believe in the first week of this series, Mike Tucker mentioned the teachings of Serinthus. I as well pay attention. When you <laughs> if you were here last week, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but this man, Serinthus, was an early Gnostic influencer in the early stages of Gnosticism. And he was an opponent of John. Some even believe that this epistle, 1 John, was directly written to combat his teachings as he was a, a, an opponent living in the same city. And that maybe it was Serinthus that had led these other members of this fellowship to depart. John's epistle comes to this church during the rise of these false teachings from, from men like Serinthus and others. Gnosticism incorporated a heretical doctrine uh, called docetism, which means to seem. According to this false doctrine, Jesus Christ only seemed to have a human body like ours. Docetism allowed that Jesus may have been in some way divine, but it denied his full humanity. Extremists of this thought began teaching that Jesus was only a phantasm or an illusion, appearing to be human but having no body at all. Later forms of this taught that Jesus had a heavenly body of some type. You know, no real description, but uh, you know, some type of heavenly body. But not a real natural body of flesh. The central problem with this teaching is that it denies the realities of the gospel. If Jesus did not have a real physical body, he could not die on the cross for our sins. He could not have been buried And he could not have raised again. Without the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have no salvation. We are fools. And we are still in our sin. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. These are core tenets of our faith. The gospel cannot be 
How do I want to word this? You cannot get the gospel wrong and be a believer. If you do not believe that Jesus came in the flesh, that he died and was buried and risen again, you do not have the gospel. And so he needed to be both fully God and fully man. And we've done a message on that when we did the God Who series. Um, and we will actually be returning to a second part of that series soon. But we talked about the full humanity and the full divinity of Jesus in that series. And so um, go check that out if you want to hear more about that. But these are core tenets. And much of these things are assumed today by believers but they were labored over and, and debated over in the early church. Several of the early councils in the church dealt with the nature of Christ. The council, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right or not, um, shout it out if you know better than me, but the council of Chalcedon in 451 affirmed that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. By affirming this stance, they were not stating a new doctrine, They were not introducing a new teaching. They were upholding the teachings of Scripture and anathemizing those teaching another gospel such as docetism. And so this church council was not creating something new. It was just recognizing and upholding what Scripture taught. John addressed this long before the Council of Chalcedon in two of his three letters that we have in our Bibles, 1st and 2nd John. 2 John 1, 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. You know, today we may face other versions of Gnosticism. I don't think Gnosticism has ever really gone away. It doesn't label itself as Gnosticism, but I, I think that the, the thing that made up that, that false teaching still exists today much of which is just labeled humanism or postmodern thought. The heresy of docetism, that Jesus was a phantasm or spirit, um, isn't a popular thing that people talk about, but I think it still rears its ugly head sometimes. But we probably deal with other false gospels. We hear about other false teachings all the time. They permeate the the church today. And John shows us that it often comes back to the question of what do you do with Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? Who is he and what has he done? If he is an option, if Jesus is just one of many teachers and he's got some good thoughts to say, then you deny the realities of the gospel. If he is the incarnation of God, that he is both fully God and fully man, then what the scriptures say about him must be true. And the gospel is true. And the only viable option for salvation, every other teaching on Christ, then, is false and to be rejected. The spirit behind these false teachings is the spirit of Antichrist, which John says was already in the world. Antichrist here means against Christ. He was in the world is in the world and will remain in the world until Christ returns. And so we must learn to recognize this spirit. How do we do so? By learning the gospel. I heard Tom McArdle share a couple of, on a couple of occasions uh, of his work in, a gra- in, uh, in engraving. It's a hard 
couplet of words there. Um, and I believe the way he said it was this. And, uh, you know, if I'm incorrect in this, um, he'll, he'll let me know and I'll fill you in later. But when one is in engraving school and learning to recognize counterfeit coins and counterfeit plates, which produce counterfeit bills, um, our, our paper money, uh, the student doesn't spend all of their time learning the counterfeits. They actually spend their time learning the real thing. And when you learn the real thing, you then can recognize more easily the counterfeit. So the way that you study to learn uh, what false doctrine and false teaching is out there is not to spend all your time Googling and YouTubing false doctrines out there. It can be helpful at times to know what we're combating, but the majority of your focus should be the real thing. It should be the gospel. That's what we should focus on. That's how we can spot when something is in error. By knowing the truth about the gospel. By knowing the truth of who Christ is. So study the real thing. Everyone who confesses the truth of Jesus Christ is of the Spirit of God. Those who bear the gospel message that is in keeping with the scriptures is from God. Those who deny this truth are not of God. Now, certainly this doesn't address every false doctrine that there is. It doesn't address every erroneous teaching that there is. There are many teachings in the church that actually accept the majority of orthodox teaching and err in areas of legalism and other things that... Um, we wouldn't say necessarily violates who Jesus is. It's a misunderstanding and a misapplication of the gospel. And so we must have wisdom. We must understand what connotates a false prophet and what is somebody who is misunderstanding the gospel. This does set a good standard for recognizing much of the false prophets and teachers that are out there, though. If they deny who Christ is, I, I think it's safe to say that they are a false prophet. As well, simply because we disagree with someone's interpretation of something does not automatically, automatically make them a false prophet. There are many areas where we can have disagreement, and we can graciously hold different opinions on things. Graciously. That's key. So we must have wisdom, and we must test the spirits. We can and should walk in unity with the body of Christ even when we interpret some things differently. And so what matters most is the good news of Jesus Christ and who he is. Learn the scriptures. Grow in the gospel and grace and feed on good gospel-centered teaching and test every teaching. Don't just assume, don't just take my teaching, Mike's teaching, or any of the elders here at Grace Life and just go, yeah, I know these guys, they're good. And so I just can just, you know, accept everything that they say. Test the spirits. Test the message. You should be in the word and understanding the, the scriptures and testing what I'm saying. Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, in Galatians 1, 6 through 9. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, 
Let him be accursed. So do not believe everything you hear, read, or see. Spiritual or religious activity does not mean it is the Spirit of God. Popularity, celebrityism, preachers who are out there seeing massive numbers doesn't automatically mean it's of the Spirit of God. So test the spirits, study the gospel, study the scriptures. Now, it's easy to lose heart when we consider how much deception and evil is in the world. To look at these first three verses that we've seen in chapter 4, the first John, we might even despair over the possibility of false teaching creeping into the church, even our church. But John drives us towards something important here. God is the greater God. In verse 20 of chapter 3, We see that God is greater than our heart when our heart condemns us. Now in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 4, we see that God is also greater than he who is in the world. God is the greater God. So let's read these verses, verses 4 through 6. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The world system assaults us daily. False teachers seek to lead people astray. Faulty worldviews seek to tear down anything in opposition. The age of tolerance has no tolerance whatsoever. Our own flesh seeks to enslave us in sinfulness. Yet all of this, all of this that we could easily despair over, is ordained to fail. As bleak as it appears, the darkness will be dispelled. Why? Well, verse 4 gives us a wonderful encouragement. As Christians, the believer in Christ has living inside one who is greater than he who is in the world. Who is he who is in you? The Holy Spirit is in you. Who is he who is in the world? Satan and his forces. The Holy Spirit lives within the Christian, just as Jesus told us it would be. John fourteen seventeen. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Paul writes in Romans 8, 9 through 11, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So as believers, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. When it says the Spirit of Christ or the Spirit of God, it's talking about the Holy Spirit. It is he who lives within the believer. Those who are in the world do not have the Spirit. Those who are of the Father have the Holy Spirit. You have the same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead dwelling inside of you. Is the world strong? Yes. But our God is stronger. Are there false teachers 
And are their doctrines convincing with the appearance of wisdom? Yes. But our God is wiser. The enemy may appear great. I keep thinking back to Psalm 10. And I kind of used a reference when we talked about that of David, if he had had a car at that time, driving off and God kind of being in his rearview mirror and this giant, not not Goliath, but this giant enemy in front of him. And as he keeps driving forward, it kind of appears like God is getting smaller and smaller in his rearview mirror as he drives further away. And it almost seems like he's despairing, thinking that this enemy is somehow greater. But then he remembers, no, our God is greater. So sure, the enemy at times may appear great, but our God is greater. And now his Holy Spirit dwells in you forever. These are rock-solid truths that you can hold on to. These are promises of God. You have his spirit within you. Our God is greater. Verses 5 and 6 show us that those who are of the world speak to the world and listen to the world. Those who are of God know his voice and listen to him. We have his spirit and are enabled to know truth and to recognize error. Again, some wisdom for us here. John has shown us previously to not be surprised by persecution and suffering. And so, for instance, while we have been um, angered to see what has happened in Buffalo at Compass Care, we're not shocked. That's the world's response to those who are serving Christ and serving those who can't speak for themselves. Certainly it frustrates us and certainly it causes us to grieve that that would be the response. But it doesn't surprise us. We know that the world hates those who are of the Father. John is now showing us not to be surprised that the world behaves like the world. They are in darkness and they listen to their father, the devil. Their worldview is shaped by sinful desires. I don't know if I could sum up the worldview right now of most. I think I would just say it's simply, I feel, therefore I am. I do what makes me feel good. Whatever that looks like. That worldview is shaped by sinful desires. And I think Romans 1 really shows that to us. It shows us what that looks like. And we're not going to go there, but... Um, I've referenced that a number of times recently. You can just go read it on your own time. This is a world that's given completely over to its sinful desires. Don't be surprised when the lost live like lost people. Because that's what they are. We see this all around us all the time. This is the world. So don't be surprised that they don't listen to God. Don't be surprised at the ever-shifting scale of morals or lack thereof. The world actually, I don't mean to anger anyone, but the world actually doesn't need morals. It doesn't need more morals. The world doesn't need to be told how to behave. In some churches that I'd been, it might have looked like less rock and roll, less movies and TV. That would save people. That would help people. No, that's not going to save anyone. Good moral people 
go to hell all the time. What the world needs is to be saved from their sin. Dead people don't need to go and behave. Dead people don't need to go and be better. Be a better dead person. They need resurrection. Sinners need to be made new. And Christ does that. Christ gives life. That's the good news. That only Christ can change a person's heart. Just doing something better or being better, that's not going to save anyone. That won't bring resurrection. And so we see that the one who is of God, the spirit, or the Christian, has the spirit of God and listens to God, knows his voice, knows the truth when it's taught. And those who don't, don't know that voice. They don't hear that voice. They don't listen to the voice until God says, you hear it. John ten sixteen, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. A little further down in verses 22 to 30 of that chapter. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So, in this interesting scenario, uh, Jesus is saying that, All those who are of my fold will come to me. They will know my voice. So at that point in time, they weren't believers, but he's saying they will hear my voice, they will know it, and they will come. And the Pharisees are like, well, will you just tell us who you are? And he's like, I've told you, and you don't believe. Why? Because they were not of his fold. They were not his sheep. So they rejected that voice. These people were seeing Jesus Christ, the Son of God, right before them, and they still rejected him. So those who will believe Jesus will be saved. They will hear his voice and know him, and he will know them. And all who hear him and and know him and come to him are his sheep, and he will never lose them. Those who are not of his fold will not believe. Now, this isn't in my notes. This is a rabbit trail, but I'm announcing it beforehand. Um, One could then say, well, then why do we need to tell people about Jesus if only those who are of his fold will come to him because that's the way that God has ordained for this to work we have a mission as believers to go tell the gospel to those around us neighbors friends co-workers um, enemies those in other countries anyone who has ears to hear we don't know who those people are he told Paul that I have many in that city that are mine And that gave Paul confidence to go preach the gospel because he knew that there were people who would receive Christ. And so this should actually liberate us to preach the gospel freely to all, knowing that there will be some certainly who will reject it, but there will be some who hear the voice of Christ and come. And so we can proclaim the gospel, and we should proclaim the gospel, to any and all freely. John fifteen twenty six. but uh, speaking of the Holy Spirit now, 
But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Then in 1 Corinthians 2.12, Paul writes, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. These two verses show us how the Holy Spirit leads the believer in truth and reveals when there is error. He is called the Spirit of truth, and he will bear witness about Christ. He is pointing believers to Christ. So when there is false teaching, the Holy Spirit will reveal that to believers, that there is error, that that teaching is not of him. But then we must ask, why do so many give in to false teaching? Because it seems like the church is just full of false teaching. Why are so many easily swindled? Why are so many just easily given to this? 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4 says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The world enjoys these worldviews and these false worldviews and ideals because they are of the world. So simply put, there will just be some people who are in the church even who will follow after false gospels because they are of the world. They've never been born again. Believers who once received the truth and have turned towards false teaching, um, it is because they are being led astray. It's either by the the desires of the flesh, wanting things that suit their own passions, um, things that entice them, things that they enjoy, rising up, the flesh rising up, or because they didn't listen to the Spirit, didn't know the Scriptures, and have trusted the teachings of a false teacher, not testing the spirits. But we have this confidence. Ultimately, if one departs after false teaching and does not return to the truth, the Bible shows us that they were never of us. Whereas those who have fallen into false teaching, uh, maybe sometimes even over major topics, if they were truly of the fold of Christ, they will return. The Spirit will bring them back. We see in 1 John 2.19 something we've already covered. Speaking of those who have departed, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So some will depart and they will not return because they were not of the flock. Others will depart maybe for a season, maybe even an extended season. But the Lord will bring them back. For us, though, as believers, it's important to remember the the heart of what John is getting at. Test the spirits. Test the message. Test the messenger. Is it the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is it keeping with scripture? So it's important that we know the gospel. It's important that we know the scripture so that we can test those who are proclaiming messages, whether they are false or true. Is it adding to the gospel? Is this Jesus plus? You hear us use that phrase on occasion. Jesus plus law keeping. Jesus plus what church I should attend. Jesus Jesus plus my political views. Jesus plus how my kids are educated. Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus fill in the blank. It's Jesus plus nothing. That's the best kind of math. I want to leave you with a couple of discussion questions as we wrap up here. And feel free to use these in group or just at home, but maybe discuss these um, at some point in time this week. First, how do we recognize false ideas about Jesus? 
How do we recognize false ideas about Jesus? Second, we often call false teachings in the church a Jesus plus or the gospel plus teaching. How can we who are believers slide into those false teachings? How do we uh, maybe let the gospel slip and we, we slide into a Jesus plus fill in the blank type of teaching? This morning, uh, we are going to partake of the Lord's table together. Um, you'll see a change on the tables. Uh, someone gr- uh, generously donated these to us, and so uh, we're going to use those, and it definitely just makes it look a little nicer. Uh, so thank you. And um, table in the front, table in the back, uh, grab what you need. Um, there's gluten-free wafers, um, and we're still using the cups with the juice and the wafer um, all self-sealed for the time being. But as we partake in the Lord's table, I want to dwell on the gospel of Jesus Christ as we conclude. The real thing. We're going to respond together in worship. We're going to sing together. We're going to participate in the table. The gospel shows us that Jesus promises the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with the Father, the indwelling presence of the Spirit, fruit of the Spirit, and more to those who have trusted in Christ. Those who have heard his voice and believed. And in taking the Lord's table, we show in a visible way the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And we anticipate his return when he will live with us. He will dwell with us forever. And he will be our king. And then we will feast with him. Now, normally in times past, we've read from 1 Corinthians. But I wanted to kind of change things up a little bit. You know, just kind of stir it up a little bit here. We're going to recite the Apostles' Creed together this morning. We haven't done that in a while. And uh, so as we do that, the words are going to be on the screen. Um, So if if you would, just stand, um, and we'll recite this together. And at the end of it, I'll invite you to come up and partake in the Lord's table or to go to the back table, whichever is closer to you. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the grave. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.